Welcome to Special Relationship, a podcast from Mike and The Economist. I'm Celeste Katz from Mike. And I'm John Prudhoe from The Economist. It's the day after the first presidential debate at Hofstra University. We're sitting here together in New York trying to talk about what, you know, what it all meant. Typical politician, all talk, no action, sounds good, doesn't work. Never going to happen. Well, Donald, I know you live in your own reality. Uh, She doesn't have the look. She doesn't have the stamina. I said she doesn't have the stamina. And I don't believe she does have the stamina. This is a man who has called women pigs, slobs, and dogs. I do want to bring up the fact that you were the one that brought up the word super predator about young black youth. I think Donald just criticized me for preparing for this debate. And yes, I did. And you know what else I prepared for? I prepared to be president. And I think that's a good thing. We don't yet have polls, Celeste. And there's speculation as to whether what happens this time is what usually happens, which is the polls don't move a huge amount after the first debate, or whether this time is somehow a little different. What's your take on that? I'm interested to see if anybody thinks that there was a moment where there's sort of this catastrophic error. I think for better or for worse, I look at debates sometimes as uh, people watching them the same way they watch, say, the uh, Indy 500 or or NASCAR or something like that. People are marginally interested in who wins, but a lot of people are just watching to see if somebody crashes and burns. And I think that, I don't know if there was sort of a knockout blow if somebody really ended up on the canvas last night, but there was uh, definitely some good give and take. So I think there was. I thought Donald Trump's answer to the Bertha question, which the moderator Lester Holt pressed him on a few times, was extraordinarily bad. It was waffly. It was long. I mean, if you look at the transcript again afterwards, it just made no sense. The birth certificate was produced in 2011. You continued to tell the story and question the president's legitimacy in 2012, 13, 14, 15, yeah. as recently as January. So the question is, what changed your Well, mind? nobody was pressing it. Nobody was caring much about it. But I was the one that got him to produce the birth certificate. And... I think I did a good job. We're talking about racial healing in this segment. What do you say to Americans? Well, it was very, I say nothing. I say nothing because I was able to get him to produce it. He should have produced it a long time before. I say nothing. Um, I thought that was very, very bad. And I thought from then on he was sort of underwater. But, of course, one of the difficulties talking about this is that people will have watched the same debate and sort of seen what they wanted to see to some extent. You know, if you went in there... As a Donald Trump supporter, you probably saw him sticking it to Hillary Clinton and thought, you know, kind of great. If you went in there as a convinced Clinton supporter, I think you'd come out thinking Donald Trump's unqualified to be president. But I think the reason this debate might prove to be important when we look back at this campaign is that you've got that 10 to 20 percent of likely voters who say that they are thinking about either not voting or voting for a third party candidate or they remain undecided. And I think those people if they watched the debate last night, will not have formed a more favorable impression of Donald Trump than they had last week. Right. I mean, I came away from it personally, uh, having decided that I'm going to be writing you in. And, and I think that's a, you know, that's a pretty viable, a pretty viable option for a lot of people. We'll, we'll see how that goes based on your performance at the debate last night. Just kidding. But, but spelling my surname is a challenge. <laughs> well worth it, though. But I, I seriously do think that that you're right. I do think that the people who win in there uh, with a certain impression may not have come away with a different one. So looking ahead, we have two more debates coming up in October. Uh, one is in... Uh, 
out in Missouri and the other in Las Vegas. And the question is, will either of them be able to move the needle? There are a lot of people that are not going to make this decision uh, until until the very last days of the campaign. And uh, the, the question is, uh, you know, is this sort of the beginning of the end? Is this when people are starting to tune in and actually form real impressions uh, about either of these candidates? Hillary Clinton is somebody that people have known for a long time as first lady, as senator, secretary of state. Uh, she has a, a track record and Donald Trump is a bit more of a, of a wild card and an unknown. But that is something that people actually may like about him, that he is a sort of change candidate, maybe not the kind of change candidate, certainly not the kind of change candidate Barack Obama was uh, eight years ago. But uh, does he fulfill uh, a, a need for people to sort of strike out against this Washington establishment beltway culture that they don't think is doing them any favors? Is there some way he can push that notion harder during the next two debates than he did this time? There were a lot of things that were left unsaid. I thought his strongest lines in the first debate were where he said to Hillary Clinton, well, you've been working on this stuff for 30 years. You've been in public life for 30 years. Why haven't you fixed any of it? And I can imagine him sort of prosecuting that line of argument again. But if you look back at this campaign throughout the course of the year, there have been various moments when commentators have said, right, this is the moment where we might see a different Donald Trump. This is the point where he leaves his persona from the primaries behind and kind of pivots to, to win the general election. And I think, you know, each time people have made that argument, you know, this is what's going to happen, it hasn't happened. You get the same Donald Trump. So I think the idea that we will get a very different candidate in debates two and three, I, that, that seems far-fetched to me. What about you? I wonder if he'll prepare more the next time. I, one of the big storylines this time was that she was really hitting the books and she was really uh, practicing and studying up on him. And he was just keeping up a regular campaign schedule, uh, continuing with events and rallies and, and sort of pushing back against uh, the idea that he needed to buckle down and, and, and cram for this test, so to speak. He's sort of like um, the kid who walks into the final and, and decides to wing it. Now, based on what happened uh, at Hofstra, I wonder if his team is going to find some way to convince him that a little bit more preparation is needed. If you want to be president of the United States and you walk onto the stage and suggest that your opponent, who is 68 years old, has spent her quote-unquote entire life fighting ISIS, you might want to get the cliff notes for that history lesson. I, I think that that could be a, a problem. Do the Trump people like it? Sure, they like it. But they liked it already. The question is, is he convincing people who are undecided? And especially, will he be able to convince people who are independents, who don't feel this sort of natural party allegiance and don't know which way to go? Yeah, my take on that is I, I think not. I ran into Ronald Brownstein of National Journal before the debate, who's somebody who I think has been very smart on looking at the polling all year. And for a while, he's been going on about how, you know, one of the most interesting things that's different about this election in the polling is how poorly Donald Trump does among white voters with college degrees. Look, I thought there was one overwhelming test in this debate, whether Donald Trump could reduce the share of Americans who say he's not qualified to be president, particularly college-educated whites who say he's not qualified to be president. And I would be surprised if there was anything that happened tonight that reduced that number. And, you know, the, the big question will be, do you get a second chance to make a first impression? I mean, 
the, the biggest hurdle he look, he's had he's had momentum in some ways. There are a lot of resistance to Hillary Clinton, but as long as 60% of the country says he's not qualified to be president, I think it's hard for him to win in the end. One of the things I was looking for this time, having spoken to some people for some debate run-ups, was uh, one of the people I spoke to, uh, a professor from actually from Washington University in St. Louis, I believe, which will be the host of, a, of a, an upcoming debate, said what he really expected was Hillary Clinton's preparation might sort of fall to the wayside because in the first few minutes of the debate, Trump could sort of drop some sort of bombshell or make some sort of outrageous, unexpected statement that could completely derail the whole proceedings. I think that uh, Trump was... Uh, certainly out there uh, taking some swings at Hillary Clinton, but did he did he sort of uh, go with the nuclear option? I don't think so. Maybe that's something that we're going to see in the next uh, round or the uh, following. But she was also quite aggressive from early on. She went quite personal. You know, one of her first answers, she started talking about how Donald Trump had started his business with $14 million from his father. You know, she she really went quite personal quite early. So I think, again, pre-debate, there was this idea that Donald Trump would kind of bully her and kind of, you know, throw sort of verbal punches in her direction. Actually, I thought that quite a lot of the aggression came in in the other direction, at least to begin with. It was interesting to me how he was referring to her as the secretary and secretary and so on, and she's calling him Donald. And I don't know if there's there's always a power dynamic in the way they physically approach each other. I mean, just the, the body language in the debate is interesting, and I wonder if either of them will uh, will recalibrate in that regard. Hillary Clinton was uh, criticized in the past, I think during the uh, the commander in chief forum for not smiling enough, and a lot of people, of course, were sort of rolling their eyes at that and saying, "Well, why does she have to smile just because she's a woman and it's a double standard and so on?" And then there was that sort of an incredible Trump uh, sigh or moan or groan. I, I, I don't know. What, I don't know what you what would you call that? I don't know. It was a strange noise, not often heard in nature, but. Uh, Again, one of the things that's very unusual about the debate last night is there are about 25 moments, maybe more, looking back on it, that in any other year would be the kind of gaffe of the campaign. So, you know, there were some things that Hillary Clinton said, some quite strange stuff about how the financial crisis was caused by George W. Bush's tax policies. But, I mean, on Donald Trump's side, the stuff about how it's smart not to pay federal income tax, you know, it was smart to take advantage of the... Uh, housing bust during the financial crisis. You know, some of those things were pretty extraordinary. You compare them with the debates we had with uh, Mitt Romney, the Romney-Obama debates. It's unimaginable that a Republican nominee in, in 2012 could have said some of those things. Well, I mean, if you look at a guy like Howard Dean, who who was in part, not completely, but in part uh, sort of saw his campaign fall apart by you know, sort of making an enthusiastic yell or the things that people have been criticized for in past debates. Uh, uh, George H.W. Bush, I believe, looking at his watch. Al Gore sighing at one point. These things were considered sort of catastrophic events in previous debates. And now you have essentially uh, a debate that's occurring not on a stage, but in the octagon and things that in the past would have been just the end, the literal end of a campaign are now footnotes. It's it's strange to watch this as a reporter. And of course, it wasn't just folks in the US watching, although there are an awful lot of those. 
a lot of people will have been watching it around the rest of the world. And if they stayed tuned in until the end, I think they saw quite a strong answer from Hillary Clinton. I think her strongest answer, in fact, of the night um, on foreign policy. There was a point where she looked directly into the camera and said, you know, I I want to reassure our allies around the world that uh, we have mutual defence treaties we stand by them. America's word is good. We mean what we say. You know, don't be too freaked out by this campaign. I thought that was kind of strong and powerful and I think probably quite reassuring to, to a lot of people watching around the world. And so I know that this campaign has caused some questioning and some worries on the part of many leaders across the globe. I've talked with a number of them. Uh, but I want to, on behalf of myself and I think on behalf of a majority of the American people say that, you know, our word is good. Yeah, I'll be fascinated to hear how this how this plays out uh, outside the United States, because Trump has this sort of duality about the way he talks about international relations. Uh, you know, at uh, at one point, he sort of uh, bomb the oil, take the oil. That's always an interesting time sequence to me, but OK. But at the same time, he has a lot of praise for people like uh, Vladimir Putin and, and these sort of strong men that are uh, are not necessarily walking around with America's best interest at heart. So I think when people outside the United States look at this, they may get very different messages from these two candidates. And again, that's such an extraordinary transformation for a Republican candidate. It's hard to put enough emphasis on it. I mean, if you told me in 2012 that in the next presidential election, you would have a Republican candidate at the top of the ticket who spent quite a lot of time praising Vladimir Putin, I would have said you'd gone absolutely mad. There was zero chance of that happening. It's it's extraordinary, you know, what you are able to get away with effectively once you've once you've secured the nomination, what people in your own party will, will stick up for and defend. I mean, I, I um, was in a kind of huddle with Rents Priebus of the RNC after the debate in the spin room. And he was there just saying, you know, Donald Trump clearly won the night, very strong performance from him. You know, Hillary Clinton looked kind of weak and persuasive. It it is amazing. You need to pause for a moment and just appreciate what Donald Trump has done to the Republican Party this year. It's an extraordinary thing. That's it for this week. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. We were produced by Alan Habachak, who's sitting next to me. Thanks, Alan. Thanks, Alan. And it's good to have you here in New York again, John. If you want to help us out, you can do that by rating and reviewing the show on iTunes. I'm Celeste Katz with Mike and at Celeste Katz NYC on Twitter. And I'm John Prado at The Economist or at John Prado on Twitter. See you next week. Oh, yes.